0: Welcome to Check Us Out, the podcast for the Montclair Public Library. I'm Peter Coyle, Director of the Library, and we're glad you're joining. If you haven't been to the library lately, we encourage you to do so. We've begun offering limited in-person services, so please visit our website, montclairlibrary.org, for hours, restrictions, and limitations. We hope you'll stop by. In today's episode, Maurice is going to talk about some programs happening in October and Molly will talk about a credit score program and some of our Open Book Open Mind events that are planned. And if you're interested in local history, she's gonna talk about Montclair History Online and our collection that we have here in the library. Then for books, Ken will talk about new titles coming out for adults in October, and Kirsten's gonna discuss YA releases that are available to download on audio or ebook. Adrian will then talk about New York Times bestseller from a couple years ago, Where the Crawdads Sing. And to round out our program, Selva is interviewing psychotherapist Robert Champe, author of When to Call a Therapist.
1: Welcome, everyone. We're going to talk about programming here at the Montclair Public Library. I'm Maurice from the Adult School Department.
2: And I'm Molly from the Adult Services Department.
1: And we just want to bring some of our programs to your attention. We know uh, things are getting a little bit better out there, you know, in terms of uh, people engaging with programs and you know, looking for exciting and interesting things to do, and we look—we see ourselves as a provider of that for the community. So here at the adult school, we have a few classes coming up, a few special lectures, I should say, coming up for the fall, and we're going to try something a little bit different here in the month of October. We're going to do a two-part lecture series, actually, on slavery from the College to the Constitution. This will deal with America's colonial history of African enslavement and white racial privilege and power first in the New England and Middle Atlantic colonies. That will be on Thursday, October 22nd at 7 p.m. Then we're gonna come back on Thursday, October 29th at 7 p.m. and focus on the Southern colonies. And we thank Dr. Louis Edwards from Drew University for leading both lectures. And we're very excited about them. We're also going to do another lecture involving American history, this time how we publicly remember American history. The lecture is called, How do we remember monuments and memorials in the United States? That will be Thursday, October 15th at 6.30 p.m. And I should say, these are both Zoom lectures and this one will explore the role and purpose of publicly memorializing historical events in sculpture and architecture. And she'll cover a wide variety of more recent as well as older monuments in America spread out around the country to memorialize a variety of different events. So this is everything from the Oklahoma Memorial for the after the uh, bombing there, as well as uh, the Vietnam Memorial and these as well as other memorials that's been in the news lately. So we wanted to really highlight that and have a talk about that and what that means for Americans. And we also uh, have some other lectures that are more constructive. You know, we have healthy relationships with their adult kids. That will be Friday, October 9th at 1 p.m. This is for our some of our older residents, more senior res, residents who we treasure. Senior students, I should say, who we treasure. And we're also offering Mahjong again, beginner Mahjong. That's on Friday, October 16th at 10.30 a.m.
2: Wait, so you're doing online Mahjong?
1: We are. <laughs>
2: I love Mahjong.
1: Yeah, yeah, so it should be a that lot of fun. fun. Yeah, before in four weeks from October 16th, to November 6th, you know, it's a nice little Friday morning activity for people. So, um, oh, cool. so, so
2: people will be in groups together online and mm-hmm. kind of wait their turns. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's cool.
1: Yeah, yeah. I you know that know was a fun.
2: really big class for you in person, so that's cool that you're putting it online.
1: It was, yeah. It was such a fun thing because we want to get people some fun. You know, I know we've been through a, a pretty hard spring and you know, a tough summer, so we're trying to you know, find some fun in the fall. So we're going to do my uh, Maijong with Elisa Hirsch. You know, she's an instructor that our my John students really enjoy. Can't wait to see what this experience is like online. She's done it before online, so I I can't wait to see what it's like. This should be exciting.
2: I think people will love it.
1: I think so too. I hope so. That's what we're doing for October.
2: So far on the calendar, I'm just going to focus on a couple, that two in October and one in November, just because we don't always release on the exact first of the month, so I figure we can go a little bit into the next month. So on October 21st at 7, it's a Wednesday, We have your credit score and credit report. So this is with a a financial planner who's going to talk about understanding your credit score and credit report. I think that'll be useful and empowering. It's always good to know more about these things. I know I could probably benefit from some of this information as well. Mm -hmm. So I'm excited that we're providing this one. Um, We also are continuing our Open Book Open Mind series, which we've put online now. And we have Jonathan Alter presenting about his book about Jimmy Carter. It's a biography. And that's on Sunday, October 25th at 4. We also have another Open Book Open Mind event coming up in November, which is called The Man Who Ran Washington, which is about James A. Baker III. That is on Sunday, November 15th, also at 4 p.m., and we've got more coming up with Open Book, Open Mind. So I'll I'll make our more updates in uh, for the November podcast. But very excited about what's going on at, with the library as a whole with programs. So
1: that's I it mean. for now. Very <laughs> excited, Jonathan Alter. Yeah. That's a great name. Journalism and you know local coverage and cultural coverage in general.
2: Yes, and you know what? He's actually moderating the. November 15th discussion. So he's talking about Go his one. book on October 25th, and he's moderating for the, the book about James A. Baker on the 15th. So can we pivot sure. as, the, sure. as the people say these days? <laughs> um, <laughs> so as always, I like to highlight something that you can use with your library card, databases, things like that. Database is just like a fancy library word for like a premium online resource. I always like I should define that and I don't, but it's just a good source of online information fully vetted rather than just the chaos of the World Wide Web. Um, so in this case, I'm going to highlight some of our local history resources um, and I'll put the link in the description when this is posted, but it's very easy to get to. It's just montclairlibrary.org slash local history. So we have quite a few things, um, but I want to bring everyone's attention to Montclair History Online which is a very, I think, comprehensive repository for several different uh, local history collections. Um, And it was a partnership with the Monkler History Center, actually. So the city directories um, and and some telephone directories were provided by them. We also have over 13,000 photographs on there and we have some digitized maps. One map is from uh, 1933, one map is from 1906. Very interesting to look at these maps which cover Montclair and also surrounding areas. And um, we also have some resource guides on there which tell you a little bit more about what's in our physical collections. As of this recording, um, people can't come into the library to look at the collections, but we are still very much capable of looking at our physical collections and scanning things that we can and telling people what we have from a distance. And we've been able to answer a lot of various questions with our collection that way. So I uh, encourage people to check it out. It's slash local-history. That whole page gives you an overview of what we have, and there's a link to Monclair History online. And I would say even just the images alone are really fun. Um, You can just search various subjects and people and street names and what have you. Or you can just browse and look through. And there's some really great ones. Some of my favorites are the ones that are like the pictures of the previous library buildings and the librarians and people doing their thing. Um, So it's fun. It's a treat. You're looking for something different to do. And you don't need a library card. It's just open to everybody. So that's that's what I wanted to highlight today.
1: Sounds very interesting. I think so. Wonderful. Playing shoes from in October. I think so, yeah. So please get out and support your uh, local library online. You know, we're constantly looking to uh, provide meaningful programs and opportunities for our patrons, again, in a surrounding community when possible.
2: You always sum it up so well. (laughs) Every time. You always sum up our mission so well,
1: so it sounds like I actually planned it to say that, doesn't it?
3: Yeah,
1: <laughs> very eloquent, uh, quite the chameleon. Yeah, but, okay. yeah.
3: All right.
2: Well, so this is Molly. Maurice. Okay, signing Thank off. You see you me. next time.
1: Take care.
4: Hi, it's Ken, and I'm here to talk to you about some of the new titles for October my October titles are very plot-driven for the most part, so get ready for some gripping page turners. First up is Snow by John Banville. I've talked about Banville before. He usually writes more serious fiction under his own name and crime fiction under the pen name Benjamin Black. This time out, though, he offers a fairly traditional mystery novel as John Banville. It takes place in County Wexford in Ireland in 1957. An inspector arrives to investigate the murder of the parish priest and faces difficulties from a close-knit community with a lot of secrets. Added to this is that Inspector Stafford is Protestant at a time when the Catholic Church controlled Irish society with an iron fist. With no one willing to cooperate with him and his deputy missing, he must get to the bottom of the crime. As I've said before, I like books with a library theme, especially when they go to places out of the ordinary. The Midnight Library by Matt Haig is a science fiction novel about a future where you can check out an infinite number of possible stories. Many people are drawn to the idea that you can access scenarios where your life might've taken a different course. The main character, Nora, is tempted to undo her past mistakes, past breakups, and career choices and comes to question what truly makes life worth living and fulfilling. I first heard Stuart Turton talk about his new book, The Devil and the Dark Water, earlier this year during an online presentation, and I couldn't wait to get my hands on a copy. His previous book was the bestseller, The Seven and a Half Deaths of Evelyn Hardcastle. The new book takes place in 1634 and is about a detective named Samuel Pip facing a murder charge and being transported to Amsterdam to meet his fate. On board the ship, Things begin to go very wrong very quickly, as seemingly supernatural forces take control, and very odd things begin to happen. His own hands tied because of his situation. Pip must rely on his assistant to get to the bottom of both the crime he's accused of and the strange occurrences on the ship. The book is being described as Sherlock Holmes meets Stephen King. One of my favorite books from 2016 was The North Water by Ian McGuire, about a ship's doctor on a 19th century whaling ship. His new book is called The Abstainer. Set again in the 19th century, this one is about an Irish-American veteran of the U.S. Civil War who ends up in Manchester and joins the Fenians, a secret society intent on ending British rule in Ireland. He ends up facing off against a British constable who has his own dark past. This is a great look at the early part of the struggle for Irish independence, and the gritty streets of industrial Manchester are evoked very well. One of my favorite living writers is Don DeLillo, and his novel Underworld is absolutely brilliant. Since that book, DeLillo has mainly stuck to shorter works of fiction, like his new book, The Silence. This one has a very contemporary feel to it as a group of people at a, dinner, at a dinner party, a scenario DeLillo has used before in Mao 2, are waiting for visitors to arrive from Paris and find themselves plunged into chaos as all digital connections are suddenly severed worldwide. How these characters navigate this new, old world makes for the type of fiction that DeLillo does better than almost anyone. And last, a prequel. Alice Hoffman is a prolific writer and has had many classic books but her best known is probably Practical Magic from 1995, which was made into a movie with Nicole Kidman and Sandra Bullock in 1998. That story was about two sisters who are witches, trying to upend the centuries-long curse that makes any man they fall in love with die an unnatural death. That book was set in the present. The new book is called Magic Lessons and goes back to the 1600s. Maria Owens, ancestor to the two sisters, learns the magic arts, and sets into motion the curse that will haunt her family for generations. That's all for this month. I hope you enjoy some of these great stories.
5: Hi, everybody! Thanks for joining me again. This is Kirsten Payne, Teen Services Librarian at Montclair Public Library. I'm here to talk about a few new releases uh, that we've got in our e and e audiobook collection available on eBuckles with your library card. The first up is Punching the Air by E. B. Zaboy and prison reform activist Yusuf Salam, one of the Exonerated Five. This is a timely novel in verse about a teenage boy named Jamal who was wrongly incarcerated for assault. The book explores his time in a juvenile detention facility and explores institutional racism, flaws in the justice system, and day-to-day life for those who are incarcerated. While the novel doesn't flinch away from complex issues, it is pervaded with some sense of hope for possible reform and will likely leave readers inspired to explore ways to make change to the systems it examines. An author's note goes into depth about the Central Park Five, now the Exonerated Five, and Salam is able to bring his firsthand experience to the text. This novel comes very highly recommended. Next up we have The Lost Book of the White by Cassandra Clare and Wesley Chu. This is the second entry in the Eldest Curses series and takes place in the Shadowhunters universe. This book picks up with Magnus Bain and Alec Lightwood living in New York in a loft with their toddler and warlock son, Max. They have a peaceful and fabulous existence when two acquaintances break into their house to steal the powerful Book of the White and spirited away to Shanghai. What follows is part magical caper, part romantic getaway, part journey to the realm of the dead, all in a standard day. This next entry in Claire's richly imagined world is sure to delight both old fans and newcomers to her books. We also have another sequel to check out this month, Majesty by Catherine McGee. This is the second book in the American Royals series and is set in, as you may have guessed, a version of the US that has a royal family and one with a lot of drama at that. In Majesty, Princess Beatrice has just become queen Her sister Samantha is still partying and struggling romantically, and both are surrounded by a cast of secondary characters with their own agendas and intrigues. This is a fun, soapy novel to get lost in. I highly recommend checking out both this and the first installment if you have not yet. Finally, we have Raybearer, an excellent, immersive new fantasy by Jordan Ifueko. Raybearer is the story of Teresai, a young woman raised in isolation by a woman known only as the Lady. Terasai is sent to compete against other teens to be chosen as a member of the Crown Prince's Council of Eleven. She relishes the opportunity to be part of the council and sees the bond as something like a makeshift family. This plan is complicated by the fact that the Lady is trying to compel her to kill the Crown Prince after gaining his trust. The novel explores Terasai's journey to autonomy over her own choices and quest to find not only herself but a place to belong. Thanks for joining me. As I said, these are all available through e-buckles, e-book and e-audiobook format. You can check them out with your library card. I'll have more for you next time.
6: Thanks again. Bye. Hi everyone, it's Adrian again. This time I'll be discussing Where the Crawdads Sing by Delia Owens. It's a coming-of-age crime drama about a little girl growing up alone in the swamps of North Carolina. Um, she's six years old in 1952, and she's bearing witness to her mother abandoning her abusive and drunk husband, as well as her five children. Kaya witnesses her older siblings, Missy, Murphy, Mandy, and eventually Jody, leave as well due to their father's drinking and physical abuse. Ultimately, by the time Kaya's 10 years old, her father is the last to go, and she is abandoned completely. She learns to get by by digging mussels at low tide and selling them to a gentleman named Jumpin, who owns a bait shop in town. Jumpin and his wife Mabel are key to Kaia's survival throughout this book. Mostly Kaya stays away from people. She actually does go to school once. Um she's lured by someone from the school system telling her about free lunch. Mind you, you know food is very very scarce for this 7-year-old girl who's abandoned and living on her own. But she she does go. Um but she doesn't return anymore after the first day because she's berated and the kids are calling her names like Marsh Hen and Swamp Rat. What she winds up doing is spending her days collecting feathers, shells, bones, bird nests, things like that that are found in her surroundings in the swamp. This is very key to Kaya's progression later in the book. All of this collecting and her knowledge that she gains through this collecting. Um, She's not able to write her spell at this point. She does these watercolors, um, these paintings, and that's how she begins to organize and categorize everything that she collects. day while Kaya is collecting specimens, a guy named Tate, a local guy named Tate from town spots her. And he's very intrigued, and he is intent on getting her attention by leaving her rare bird feathers on a tree stump. And he succeeds. And once that happens and they make that connection, he begins to offer things. The most important thing he offers is to teach her how to read. This winds up growing into a romance. Kaya then begins to thrive. Tate leaves for college. He promises to come back. But later, Tate worries because Kaya's from the swamps and she's very unkempt and very wild. He's scared that she won't fit into his world and he doesn't return. Kaya gives up on him at this point. Well... We move along, and Kaya's 19 years old. Kaya's going into town more and more often. While she's in town, she gets noticed by a guy named Chase Andrews, and Chase begins to pursue Kaya. She finally gives in to his advances, and they begin to court. He becomes really smitten with her, despite the fact that Chase is a very rich kid and can't be seen with the likes of anyone from the Marsh. Um, He winds up falling in love with her. She gives him a gift, and the gift is a beautiful shell necklace that he wears. Ultimately, he promises to marry her. But Kaya goes into town yet again, another day that she takes her boat through the marshes into town, and she discovers that Chase is actually engaged to someone else, and she dumps him. In the meantime, Tate comes back to town and tries to apologize for what he did for abandoning her basically because remind you this is abandonment he loves her they have this wonderful budding romance he promises to come back and he doesn't so this is another bone of contention for her yet another person abandoning her i don't think she's taking his apology too well well moving along Chase winds up dead. And despite having a solid alibi, Kaya is put on trial for his murder. And this is where the book picks up. She's the quintessential talk of the town. And the trial comes down to more than just the question of whether Kaya is responsible for his death or not, for Chase's death or not. It's also about whether this town can redeem themselves because they have ostracized Kaya her entire life. Um, One of the statements in this book that really struck me and I wrote down, so bear with me. I'm going to read it. Her defense attorney says, Some people whispered that she was part wolf or the missing link between ape and man, that her eyes glowed in the dark. Yet in reality, she was only an abandoned child, a little girl surviving on her own in a swamp, hungry and cold, but we didn't help her. What a great book. The details, the writing, everything. I highly recommend you guys give this book a try. And also, it's going to be turned into a major motion picture. So that should give you some incentive as well. This is Adrian Harden discussing Where the Crawdads Sing by Delia Owens.
3: Hello, this is Selwa Shami, Assistant Director of the Montclair Public Library. Today, I'm here with Robert Champy, LCSW. He has worn many hats in his career as a clinician, psychotherapist, couples counselor, writer, and author. He earned a bachelor's degree in psychology from Montclair State University and a master's degree in social work from Rutgers University, both in New Jersey. He's worked in many different settings in his 20-plus years in behavioral health and has a private psychotherapy practice for over 10 years. Robert Champy is the author of the book, When to Call a Therapist, which was published in June of 2019. In addition to his psychotherapy practice, Mr. Champy is a media contributor for several online publications. Thanks for coming, Robert. Thanks for joining us today on the Library Podcast.
7: Well, thanks for having me, Selwa.
3: So how long have you lived in Montclair and why did you decide to move here?
7: Well, I actually moved here, uh, way back in 1967 and I moved here with my parents. And so over the last, believe it or not, uh, 50 years or so, I've made Montclair my home. So I've been here a a very long time.
3: And you have, yeah, that is a long time. So you grew up here and then you stayed. Did you ever move away or have you just been here?
7: Yeah, here and there, I moved to some of the surrounding towns, but for the most part, I always landed back into Montclair. Uh, It's a place I I feel very comfortable in, and uh, it's a place I call home.
3: It's a a great town. And you also have a business in Montclair.
7: Yes, I am a licensed clinical social worker, and I have a private psychotherapy practice in Montclair. Uh, I have a second office in Midland Park, which is Bergen County. Uh, but I'm currently doing teletherapy now because of uh, the coronavirus.
3: Yeah, I realize a, a lot of therapists are doing that, which is great. I'm glad that's working out for you. So let's talk about Montclair a bit. What are a couple of your favorite places in Montclair and, and why?
7: Well, Montclair has so many great places, as you know, but I really like the Van Vleck Gardens. I've been to several events there and it's just a wonderful place to to be. You can walk on the grounds uh, and just sit on a bench and, and think. And it's just been there for you know a very long time as the host for many community events. I also like Eagle Rock Reservation, which I know straddles Montclair and West Orange. Uh, but there's great hiking there. Certainly at the top is the spectacular view of the New York City skyline. And also a 9-11 memorial is there, too. So those are two of my favorite places to walk around in town.
3: Yeah, I, I like those two places, too, actually. Montclair is a, a great place for restaurants. Do you have any favorites?
7: Uh, yeah. Nori for sushi. I really like that a lot. I think everyone likes Raymond's on Church Street. I mean, that's just tried-and-true place uh, for so long now. You know, a number of other restaurants. There are new restaurants that are popping up. Uh, it, there's just so much to choose from. You know, that's been impacted, unfortunately, by COVID, but... Uh, At least we're now getting a chance to visit our favorite restaurants again by sitting outside and minimal seating inside.
3: Yeah I think the restaurants have really adapted to that. I ate at Raymond's a few times outside and it it was really nice just to be able to go out again. So I'm going to move on to libraries now. What role have uh, libraries played in your life?
7: Well I I would say a a big role. You know ever since I was little I, I would go to visit libraries and you know, check out my books. Um, but it really played a major role when I was in college. And, you know, I'm going back a little bit actually pre-computer, and so they had the card catalogs that you could open up and look for books and journal articles. But it really had an impact on me during my graduate studies at Rutgers, where I needed to use you know, microfiche and microfilm and other, other means of uh, doing research. And so that was really helpful, and a big part of my education was the the libraries on the Rutgers University campus.
3: Yeah, that's where I went to library school, actually, was at Rutgers, and it was at a time before the internet was really widespread, so I had to learn the card catalog, the whole thing um, in in that library, but it's, it's, it's a great library, it really is.
7: It really is, yeah. Yeah.
3: So let's talk about your book, When to Call a Therapist. What inspired you to to write this book?
7: Well, I had started a manuscript about three and a half years ago, and I wanted to write a book because I've observed in uh, my private practice that a lot of people who come into therapy come in too late. And what I mean by that is people tend to suffer unnecessarily for long periods of time before they seek help. And so I wanted to write this book to encourage people to come into therapy sooner rather than later. And I think that's the main reason why I did that. I completed my manuscript, I found a publisher and editors, and and the book came out last June.
3: What are some of the reasons people seek out therapy?
7: A lot of people, I mean, there's a lot of anxiety out there, especially these days, uh, depression. And I've been seeing a lot of families lately and couples for couples counseling. I think COVID has escalated the need for services in those areas because people are together more often and they're, you know, we're, we're isolated, we're in quarantine, and people just need to talk to someone else outside of the family and their friends. So I'm getting calls for, for those uh, reasons, but it could, be, it could be just about anything that is getting in the way of one's normal functioning.
3: I mean that all makes sense, especially now. I'm sure there's a lot of pressure, you know, on families, so that doesn't that doesn't surprise me. Do you have a specialty as a therapist or do you align yourself with a particular method?
7: I think a lot of therapists use what's called CBT. CBT stands for cognitive behavioral therapy. And uh, that means if you change the thoughts, you can change your behaviors. But I work with a lot of different modalities, depending on what's uh, presented to me by my clients who come in. And another interesting one is uh, mindfulness-based dialectical behavioral therapy. And it sounds very fancy, but really it's, it's about being here in the present, not getting stuck in the past, not projecting too far into the future, but really dealing with our problems in the here and now. And so many people, especially couples, go back to the past and they get stuck there and they just can't get past their issues and there's never any resolution and then they're stuck. And uh, a lot of people project into the future and they worry about the what-ifs. What if this happens? What if that happens? But it's really right here in the present that we have the most control and that we can really handle our issues the most effectively.
3: Are there particular techniques that you use with people to help them ground themselves in the present?
7: Yes, uh, there are mindfulness uh, exercises, and mindfulness is a big word. If you were to Google it, or you were to go on a site like Amazon, you're gonna see a lot of people who have written a lot about mindfulness. I've done exercises with mindfulness, and basically, you can use any object, but I'll use what the writers like to use. You get a small box of raisins, and what you wanna do is you wanna engage all your senses in this mindfulness exercise. For example, you wanna look at the raisins and it has all kinda of little wrinkly shapes on it. If you shake the box, you can hear the raisins inside the box. You can actually you know, uh, touch them, smell them, and taste them too. If you taste some raisins, you can run your tongue along those ridges on the, on the raisins. And when you do that, if, if you're really engaged, nothing else will come into your mind. There'll be no other distractions. You'll be focused on all five senses as you explore the raisins. It's to really try to hone in on the present moment without going backwards into the past or too far into the future. And if you try it, it really, it really works and it can really ground someone in the here and now.
3: Yeah. I think especially now where it's really hard to not think about the future and wonder what's going to happen. So I'm sure these techniques can really be helpful. In most these definitely. times.
7: <laughs> yeah. Most definitely. Yeah. Yeah.
3: So in your book, you you know, you use your own personal experiences and you you use case studies and, you know, to provide examples for people to illustrate what you're talking about. One of the things that you wrote about is that you experienced um, general anxiety disorder earlier in your life. How did you overcome that?
7: Yeah. When I was a kid through my teen years, And into my, my twenties, I had a lot of anxiety and also depression. And I thought it was normal to be carrying around these feelings of feeling either anxious or hypervigilant, you know, in, in different situations or sad. And I just thought, well, you know, this is how people feel. And, and I went about living day to day. Well, a friend of mine who was in therapy suggested that maybe I would, I should try it out. He said he was anxious when he was changing careers and, and and he was very anxious when he became a father and and he found a therapist and uh, it worked out very well for him and he thought I should do the same, which I did. In my mid to late 20s and into my 30s, I found a wonderful therapist and we worked together and, uh, and we, we had a very good relationship together. and. I would say that therapy actually changed my life from that moment forward.
3: Is that what inspired you to pursue a career?
7: You know, I would think so. I think a lot of therapists and clinicians and psychologists, I think I think we, we have an interest in human behavior. The person who we're with the most is ourselves. And so, you know, I think we can be very introspective and, and, uh, and do a lot of thinking and If you go to therapists bookshelves, I'm sure you're going to see a lot of the same books that we read because that's that's what you did to try to get some insight into some of our experiences.
3: You also have a chapter on stress and burnout, which I think virtually all of us are experiencing during this pandemic. What kind of self-care would you recommend, especially now?
7: Hmm. Well, when I first talked about stress and burnout, I put together a PowerPoint presentation and I met with a group of social workers at a hospital in New Jersey, and it was first set up as a uh, a guide for healthcare professionals, and I would just like to say a little bit about that. You know, today's healthcare professionals, whether you're a doctor or a nurse, a social worker or anyone else, you know, they're on the front lines and they're seeing a lot every single day: sickness, illness, death, and dying. And I would encourage those frontline uh, workers to reach out and and, and to, to tell their stories. Everyone has a story, everyone is working, you know, long hours and, you know, it's gonna take its toll on them. When we experience stress, it's stress is never good, but if we can kind of keep up with our workload and answer our emails and return our phone calls, you know, we have a sense of satisfaction at the end of the day. It's when stress is repeated and stress is it piles up, and you never get to that place where you feel like, okay, my desk is cleared, and you know uh, I feel good about that. Stress is too much, and burnout is a depletion. It's a depletion of energy. Uh, a lot of people become apathetic, and it's you know it just uh, is not a good place to fall into because it's very very hard to come out. I think especially everyone, but especially the, the, the healthcare workers need to really take a look at, are they taking care of themselves? Are they getting enough sleep? Are they eating the right foods? Because when you work in a hospital or any other facility like that, there are donuts and cookies and candies every place you turn. And sometimes people are living on those foods, which, uh, you know, it's not the healthiest thing to, uh, to do.
3: That's really good advice. So I guess in seeing families, are, are you helping them cope with um, like online learning and figuring out childcare and all of those sorts? Like what kinds of issues are really coming up specifically now?
7: One big issue I found to be fairly universal is people who are working from home have a hard time structuring their day. You know, they get up and, and they, might, well, they might get up a little later and then they might go online and check some work emails, but they might be distracted to do something else. and and I, I know I know a number of people who have fallen behind in their work because when you're at the office, you're at work and you're around your coworkers and your peers. But at home, home happens to be everything. It's the place where you unwind. It's the place where you work now. It's a place where you you know you school uh, the kids and everything else. so I, I recommend and I talk to people about trying to structure today, as best you can. For example, you know, have something to do in the morning, some kind of maybe morning work or uh, some kind of routine, the afternoon the same way, and maybe reserve the evening for the family or just to unwind. But when people don't have that structure like you do at the office, people seem to be all over the place and they just can't get any traction at home so that that's been helpful for a lot of people we also have to pay attention to our basic needs we need to continue to take our medicines we need to get proper sleep i talked about diet that we have to make sure we're getting nutritious foods and also maybe a little exercise too that a lot of people have put on what they call covid weight because you know we're not as active as we as we once were i would also recommend staying connected to family and friends and we can do that you know on the phone or through various platforms you know like zoom and and facetime just to stay in touch and 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 keep up with things because people can isolate and they're going to be alone and we're not designed for that we're designed to be social beings and so for those who aren't reaching out to other people they have more of a tendency to say they're lonely and they're and they're kind of sad and i would also uh finish up by saying if you if you feel these feelings and they're not going away if, if if you're sad every day it could be depression anxiety relationship issues family issues i would advise you know please reach out call a therapist and at least start online with one of the platforms see a therapist online and then hopefully in a not too distant future we can all get back to the office again
3: that all sounds great. Thank you so much, Robert. Do you have any plans for writing a second book?
7: I don't right now because this book is so is so new. But I think if I did anything, I would do a revision and maybe maybe add another chapter to the book. I'm still talking about my book, and it's uh, you know I've heard some nice things about it. So uh, I would think if a person really wanted to uh, get involved in therapy, they may want to pick up the book first, and they. They may want to read about my story and and how I got into therapy, how I became a licensed clinical social worker, and how I work and how I help people. So if if you can't quite take that step to pick up the phone and call a therapist, maybe by picking up the book could be the first step and lead into the therapy process.
3: And we do have the book in the library, so for any listener out there, give us a call or, you know, you can reserve it in our catalog. I highly recommend this book. Thank you so much, Robert. Thanks for spending some time with us, and I wish you the best.
7: Thank you, much. Very much appreciated.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of Check Us Out. As always, we welcome your feedback and suggestions. Remember to download the MPL app available on the Apple Store or Google Play. You can reach us and find more information about our materials, programs, and services at our website, montclairlibrary.org. Thanks for listening, and stay safe.